So how do you feel about those aerators? Do you think that those work or do you think that they're a waste of time, energy, and make you look like a pretentious wine snob? I personally don't use them. I prefer to just let the wine sit and slowly open up. But if you have no patience? I, I have plenty of patience. That's the problem. Welcome back to the Hermesis Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, Sean, and today we are discussing the fascinating topic of IMRTQA. We're going to specifically look at TG218 and put our own spin on it and go through the recommendations and all of that fun stuff. So we're going to start off with a little conversation about the history of IMRTQA. Sean, do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. We can talk a little bit about the history. So... IMRT, for those of you who don't know, is Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy, and it is an inversely planned treatment, meaning that a computer comes up with the specific motions and MUs, monitor units, that the machine is going to go through to deliver a patient's treatment. The machine accomplishes this modulation by moving different filters called multi-leaf collimators uh, in and out of the beam to shape the fluence that's incident on the patient. Because the computer has gone through all of these calculations and may make some very complex shapes and sometimes may push the the boundaries of what a machine is capable of delivering, we do a patient-specific QA. Since the inception of IMRT, we've recognized the fact that these plans should be checked by a person who can measure the actual dose being delivered to make sure that what we expect to happen matches what we are actually doing. Now, this has been done generally since IMRT started. Direct measurements of predicted doses and planned doses were uh, incorporated into the TOMO planning systems when they first started doing them. So, most institutions had policies that allowed IMRTQA to happen by the third fraction of a patient's treatment. Now, because these treatments are very modulated, the necessary amount of radiation being shot towards the patient goes up because you have smaller openings, you have a lot of the beam being blocked. Um, so f- to deliver the same dose to the patient, you need to have the beam on for a lot longer. So you have to increase your the number of MUs. This three-fraction QA policy was generally okay. Most clinical errors would not cause a problem if you only received three fractions of a plan, except for when it did. Uh, so a hospital in New York delivered three fractions of a patient's head and neck plan, and the MLCs were not in the beam. And so the beam that was supposed to be blocked was not being blocked, and the patient received much greater doses than they were supposed to, like a factor of nine. The patient wound up getting very sick, acute radiation sickness, and eventually dying with the side effects that they um, they got because of this these three fractions of unmodulated treatment. Um, as a result, now all patients or all IMRT plans have to be QA'd before the first fraction. And so when I say QA, that stands for quality assurance. We take a physical measurement, or in some institutions, they'll perform a virtual measurement. We can talk a little bit more about that, where a detector or a film or an ion chamber is placed in the beam and is directly comparing what that detector measures to what our planning system predicts the dose distribution should look like. That can be done in a variety of different ways uh, and evaluated in a variety of different ways. And so the AAPM came out and started forming different task groups. So there's task group 119, which initially set the stage for how good are we at doing IMRTQA. 
There's task group 120, which talked about commissioning a a planning system and an accelerator to perform IMRT. And then last year, they released task group 218, which talked about measurement methodologies and QA tolerance levels for IMRT QA. And so that, that latest task group is really starting to answer some questions that the clinic has already sort of figured out and moved forward with using some of the recommendations from TG119 that was published 10 years ago. So it's it's kind of an interesting time for it to come out after we've been using this methodology for so long. So sorry, that's a little long-winded, Andrea. I don't mean to hog that's the microphone. No, that's fine. Um, so I think one of the big questions is why are we doing IMRTQA? So you and I talked about this a little bit earlier. My whole idea with IMRTQA is historically, the beams were not really modulated. Um, You might have had a a block to block certain areas, but you didn't have something in the beam that was changing and moving as the energy was, as the modern units were being delivered. So IMRTQA kind of came out to make sure that, you know, the right devices were attached to the right field, that the shape was what you thought it would be, that everything was good since we don't directly measure these modulated fields like we measured an open field. So in my mind, always IMRTQA was there to catch these big errors, to make sure that your MLCs are in the field, to make sure that you don't have some huge error in your dose delivery. I should mention that there's other ways that we check for the quality and the accuracy of our MLCs. We do monthly quality assurance to check our MLCs, or everyone should be. It's not just these patient-specific quality assurances that we're doing. So the historical context of why MRTQA has now jumped into what we're doing now, which seems to be getting more and more, I guess precise would be the word with the measurements. Well, it's definitely more intensive now, right? So uh, I think that we, we definitely agree that the whole purpose of IMRTQA now, admittedly, the computer is coming up with this ideal plan in its, its machine space and sometimes that's really pushing the limits of what the machine can deliver. It's pushing the tolerances of the accuracy and speeds of the MLCs and the gantry and how low the dose rate can be on the on the machine. So there might be some justification in us saying, we should check this. At the same time, the reason that we now have to do it ahead of time for everyone is to catch gross errors. And uh, I'm not sure that we have the setup to really address smaller clinical errors you know, the, the goal of um, radiation physicists and radiation oncology is to keep the prescribed dose and the delivered dose to within 5% of each other. That's from the International Commission on Radiation Units and Measurement, I think, Report 89. So these, you know, these measurements, they're not sensitive enough to constrain the delivery uncertainty to within an acceptable tolerance. So if you've got your output uncertainty of 1%, you've got uh, patient setup uncertainties that let's say accounts for 2%. um, You know, IMRT measurements, they really, the the traditional thresholds to measure these have been about 3%. And that's to 95% of the points that you're measuring. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but that's a lot of uncertainty to say, okay, we're, we're achieving this 5% 5 millimeters or 5% uh, dose accuracy just because we did this patient-specific QA. There are a lot of other factors that go into this that aren't being measured and aren't being accounted for when we when we do this. So it's 
Well, one of the things that I think scares me a little bit about all of this, you know, going through some of the research for this, we found a couple papers that were kind of looking at the way. So the way we analyze these intensely modulated radiation therapy quality assurance is with this thing called gamma. And we're going to go into a second. What is this gamma? But there have been several papers that have come out that have said there's not this huge correlation between the gamma results and how good the plan actually is. So they did this by testing known errors and seeing what how that would reflect in the gamma analysis. And there was just not really a huge correlation with that. So one of the things I wonder is, are we kind of like putting this false sense of security into ourselves by saying, hey, our MATQA are passing all the time. Um, maybe we should be doing more monthly QA on the MLCs as opposed to doing all these patient-specific QA. Maybe we would get more out of it. I don't know. That was just a thought I had reading all of this, but... No, that's a great that's a great thought. How about we step back a second? Could you explain what the gamma test is? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> so the gamma test kind of combines these two ideas of a distance to agreement and a percent difference. So what we're looking at with a gamma, it's a way of analyzing a bunch of tiny points within a dose plane. Where this came from is historically there you could you could look at this percent difference and say, hey, this point um, is within 2% of what I expected, which works really well if you have a low dose gradient area, because if you have small uncertainties in your setup, it's not that big of a deal. Um, What do you do about these higher dose gradient areas? Well, one of the things you can look at is a distance to agreement, which is saying, how far do I have to search from this point to find another point that passes? And so what we really have in a patient plan is a combination of these high and low dose gradient areas. We have high doses in certain areas and low doses in certain areas. And we really want a a test that kind of takes all of that into account and gives us a pass-fail. So the gamma combines this distance to agreement idea and this percent difference idea. So the the way it does this is it looks at a point and it says, basically, does it match either of these criteria? Yeah, so it takes the smallest of either the the dose difference or the distance to agreement. So if you have a fairly large dose difference but a very small distance to agreement, gamma will on its own assume the the distance to agreement measure by taking the minimum. Now, if the minimum value of that is less than a tolerance that you specify, so for example, 3% dose difference or 3 millimeters distance to agreement, then that point is said to pass. And you can think of this as almost this point existing in a sphere uh, with distance to agreement on one axis and dose difference on the other. And so for points near in a plateau, gamma is going to lie mostly along the axis of dose difference. And for points near a, a peak, gamma is going to lie mostly along the distance to agreement axis. And those are tests that specifically Daniel Lowe out of UCLA has done. He's one of the ones who wrote the original paper on gamma analysis in 2003. And he's done several presentations to the WAPM discussing whether or not this test is any use at all, which is kind of an interesting uh, thing to hear him talk about when he's the one who proposed it. So that's really what the test is is supposed to be doing. So when we're looking at this gamma, one of the things that I really like about what TG218 does is it says that you should have what they refer to as an action limit and a tolerance limit. And I really like this definition of things because it says, okay, I might want 95% of my points to pass. That's my tolerance. 
That means that if 95% of my points don't pass, I'm going to look into this a little further. But that it's a higher bar than your action limit. So if you have something that's 93%, it gives you some room to say, this is why it's failing. This is clinically acceptable. And I think it's important to have something like that because every plan is so different and tailored so individually that there could be a reason like, hey, maybe this is a very low dose area that we don't really care about because the dose that we measured is lower than what we expected and it's outside of the target. So that would mean that your critical structures are getting less dose than you expected them to, which isn't really a problem. So it leaves some room for that kind of interpretation. So the core part of TG218, the main metric, is gamma, as we just discussed. How valid is this gamma? How sensitive is it? Very. Very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an there was an interesting, what I have is just an abstract from Benjamin Nelms and a couple other people where they looked at some head and neck cases. They looked at 96 specifically. They introduced specific errors into the delivery of the plans and then looked at what their gamma results showed. And what they kind of found was that gamma didn't predict the errors in any way. Some of the plans that had very poor gamma results were actually fine. And some of the plans that weren't fine had great gamma results. So what do you think about this, Sean? Well, I think a lot of different people have done tests like this. And one of the problems with with that specific paper is that they didn't have a gold truth. They didn't have a ground truth necessarily defined. So they had patient plans that they had measured what their clinically acceptable gamma, uh, what their IMR TQAs were. They already had unmodified plans. And then they did these other modifications and they said, does this make the gamma rate better or worse? And some of them made it better. Some of them made it worse. So maybe there were errors in the original plan. It's hard to see. There were a lot of other papers that, um, are mentioned in TG218 in some of the middle sections. And, and just for you know clarification, TG218 is a very, very long read. 30 pages of TG text. It's hard to get through. If you haven't read every page, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But there are several other papers that have looked at predicted calculated models. So like a, a static field measurement using gamma analysis that passes perfectly and then introducing deviations into it to see what the gamma passing rates are. And they have also concluded that gamma is not very sensitive. But the interesting bit to that is that the way they changed the the calculated and expected doses was by amounts less than the gamma threshold. So they'd have a 3% dose difference in a 3 millimeter dose distance to agreement criteria, while can it detect a 2 millimeter offset in an MLC leaf? Turns out it's not very good at that. <laughs> So, so why would you make that comparison? I, I, I'm not sure. I think there have been some papers that have shown that when you use dose differences and, and offsets that are greater than what the threshold is, that gamma is very sensitive to those. So the other part that I found interesting in, in TG218, and this is a little further on in the report after they talk about some of the pitfalls of gamma analysis, they did a survey of the different vendors to figure out how they implemented the gamma algorithm. And they also sent some test cases out to the vendors. And it turns out that not everybody does this the same. And I think it's really important to stop here and note that gamma isn't really something that without great difficulty, we could just measure on our own. So we pretty much have to rely on vendors to get this gamma analysis done. Yeah. This isn't, yeah. So Andrew, have you have you evaluated whether or not your algorithm is performing an appropriate gamma analysis? 
So one of <laughs> one of the wonderful things about me is I love to read manuals. Oh. So oh, yes. I don't know why, I just always have. So our main system that we use to evaluate, yes, does it well. I think. I think it does an acceptable job. But well, have you evaluated yours? I have not. I have not uh, done that. However, when I was reading through this report, I was definitely like eyeing the two main systems that we use and seeing, oh, okay, well, so they tell you all the different options that you're allowed to have and how they perform the calculation in the vendor survey. But then when they tell you like the vendor results on the test cases, they anonymize it. So you can't tell. And there are two vendors who stick out like a sore thumb (laughs) on the way they implement gamma analysis. I don't know if I'm using one of them. Well, the good thing to note, though, is that the results of that study were that the gamma was always less than the gold standard. So none of these vendors that they analyzed predicted a better gamma than what the gold standard said. So at least for the clinical case, right? The the mathematical case, there was one. You remember you pointed it out to me earlier. Vendor E. Love the details. (laughs) Whoever vendor E is. We're on to you. But it is important to show that, you know, sometimes we put these things into what seem like black boxes and a number comes out and we kind of just trust it. And so maybe sometimes it's a good idea to go back and look at that and try to figure out exactly where that's coming from. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I, I think that, you know, I've, I've used, um, we use variant portal dosimetry. So we use the variant gamma algorithm and we use the OmniPro matrix IMRT. And so we use that gamma algorithm pretty consistently. We trust that those results are okay, but we don't. I don't think we've gone through and validated that it's of doing the appropriate gamma criteria. And, and how how would you do that other than looking at the manual? And then what would you do if you were going through the manual and you discovered that hey, my vendor is vendor E? Right, right. I don't know <laughs> what, what you like. Do. What do you do? You've invested like fifty thousand dollars into this IMRT equipment, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what you do that with that information. I guess the good thing is that. All of the results would predict a worse outcome than what the reality is. So you're just going to end up failing more plans than you probably should have, which means a lot more work and it is an annoyance, but you're not going to necessarily send a plan through that the gamma should have failed. Yeah. Yeah. That's According true. to this study. So, I mean, that's the good news. Yeah. So I found that, I found that part very interesting. Um, so I also was kind of interested in TG218's discussion on so so when they were talking about the different ways you can measure these fluences so uh, they talk about a true composite meaning that you deliver the actual plan using the actual gantry angles on a physical phantom that does not move with the gantry um, or you can deliver a field by field type of uh, situation where you have a detector that's perpendicular to the, the gantry or it doesn't necessarily have to be, but each field is evaluated separately. They started talking about OARs and whether or not points within OARs or points within targets are more important. Organs at risk. So, uh, organs at risk. <laughs> Me with my alphabet soup. Yes. Yeah. So have you ever looked at an IMRT QA and been like, nope, my, this is where the cord is and the cord is hot. Have you Have you ever looked at that in your clinic? It's very obvious on a head and neck plan where the cord is supposed to be. (laughs) So, yes. Not specifically, but I mean, if you're looking at that area roughly and notice something crazy, that would 
stand out. But most, but I, I, I get where you're going at. When you're, what we're looking at with these is usually a 2D slice out of a plan. And that 2D slice, if it was just the dose that is displayed on a patient, that would be one thing. But usually this dose is translated onto a square or spherical or some shaped phantom that is not the same dimensions as the patient. So a lot of times what happens is this whole dose distribution gets kind of spread out or skewed. So what we're looking at when we look at this 2D slice through that, it's sometimes hard to relate that to where on the patient that would be. So you say, hey, this area over here is failing. But what is that? Like a lot of times it's hard to tell. A lot of times you don't know. Is that the point you were getting at? Well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I just I don't I know that when we do our analysis, we're we're looking at this cumulative. Okay, so this say we do it field by field. Right. So this field has a 95% passing rate. I'm going to sign off on that. Like, I'm just, I'm going to look at that. I'm going to say, okay, everything looks good. I'm going to sort of scroll through the profiles and be like, hey, this, this seems all right. If there is a difference in the, the region where there's supposed to be a block, the typically gamma is not as sensitive in that area when you use what they call a global normalization. So you take the hottest point in the plan and you use that as what your 3% is. TG218 specifically recommends to use this because it seems more clinically relevant. The alternative being a local normalization. So the, the local normalization being that whatever my predicted dose at this point is, what is 2% of that? So it's going to be very stringent for low dose areas. I know that I saw an IMRTQA once that had these, this one region that was very hot. It was in the target, but it was hotter than it was supposed to be. And this was a patient who had a retreatment to the brain and that overlapped with the brainstem. And I, I went, oh, wow. I showed that that, you know, it was a field by field analysis. And I said, on these three fields, this region near the brainstem is 3% hotter and we are already at tolerance. So I, I actually sent that to the physician. I said, I need you to, to, I will sign off on this. This is my concern. And if you are okay with this, then we can go ahead and, and move forward and I will approve this, this QA. So that, you know, that's really the only time. And I, I think that's what this task group report wants us to do. And I can see some value in it, but I don't see us having the tools to routinely do that. And so that's kind of what I'm concerned with when that's a bit of a focus in this, in this TG report. That's technically not even part of the focus of this TG report. They weren't told to look at this. So one of the things that I've run into that's been problematic is sometimes you get these marginal pass IMRTQA plans and you're yeah. kind of like, man, I don't know about this. And then you go to do a symmetry and you say, hey, IMRT failed. I need you to replan it or whatever you need them to do. And they say, okay, what do you want me to change? <laughs> so <laughs> that's one of the things I always struggle with. One of the things I always fall back on is, hey, maybe you overmodulated the plan. So I might look at how many modern units are used to deliver a dose and they might put in some criteria to scale that down. So they might limit the number of modern units. Coincidentally, usually the plans have passed. So I don't know if that is part of it, but it's hard for me to say it is because we've had plans that are more modulated in the past. So this is one of those things I'm struggling with, with this gamma thing is the whole point. It's hard when something does fail, it's hard to identify the exact cause and if you tell somebody that it fails, you ha- you you need to tell them a reason or else they're just going to look at you like, why are you making me do all this work? Well, it failed. Why? What do you want me to do to fix it? So that's something I would like some more information on somehow. I don't know how to make that happen, but. Yeah, I've only seen two cases in the last 
probably six or seven years where there's been an IMRTQA fail. One of them, the dosimetrist had put a minimum number of MU for a beam delivery. And it was like 600 MU for a rapid arc beam to deliver two gray. And, uh, and so what it did is it made these very, very tiny pencils all the way across the target. And it was like, it didn't look that heavily modulated when you just looked at the planar dose. But, oh, man, when I went through the MLC and I was like, what the heck is this thing doing? Like, it's, you know, there's not a lot near it. I don't understand why it's so wrong. And I went in, I talked to him, and they were like, well, yeah, there was this option that I checked this time. It's like, oh, (laughs) let's bring that down. (laughs) Let's let this thing open up the field, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, generally, it's not a a problem. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I... I agree with you. It's really hard when you get something that it's like, okay, well, this failed. I, I, I find it very hard to get a planning reason why in most cases. Normally, I've got to go measure it with a different device and it'll pass. But doesn't that hurt your brain a little? Like my brain yeah. feels like I should be able to come up with a reason why. There should be something that sticks out like a sore thumb. And I've spent a lot of time looking at some of these plans and you never end up with a satisfactory result in your head. I mean, this is past the point where the dosimetrist already is working on a new plan. You're already ready to validate the new plan. And my brain's still like, why did that first one fail? Like, what did we do wrong? What was the problem? And yeah. And you know, I think this, this comes back to, you were talking about it earlier. You were talking about monthly QA. You're talking about weekly QA. We do daily MLC picket fences. You know, that's not a guarantee against the type of error that happened before. But, you know, do we need these tight clinical tolerances because we're guaranteeing that type of quality? Or do we just need to see that this thing works, that the it's doing pretty much what we, we designed it to do? And, and so have you heard at all about what like Washington University in St. Louis has been doing for IMRTQA? I'm going to say no. <laughs> so they designed a piece of software that acts it's not exactly like a DICOM receive, so it's not uh, it's not a machine simulator, quote unquote. But the planning system exports the MLC plan and the, the DICOM RT plan, and it runs a comparison on what it gets from the RT system. And you have independently exported a plan file to send over to it. So it's comparing what the RV, RV system, sorry, the record and verify system, which we use to, to direct the machine will transmit versus what the planning system has told it it should be. And if it doesn't find any discrepancies, that IMRTQA passes. And the way they justified it is they said, we've been doing this for 15 years and we haven't had any serious failures that are not the direct result of phantom uncertainty or improper setup. We've spent so much time chasing our tails that we don't think this is useful the goal of this is to make sure that the plan that is going to be delivered to the machine matches the plan that the treatment planning system came up with. So they do mention that a little bit in TG218, but they don't talk about it at all as to whether or not this is an appropriate type of QA to run. Yeah, I mean, that could be a hint for some of the graduate students listening. Maybe you can find out some novel way to test this or look into this further. I mean, I know there are studies out there that have been done, but I think, Sean, you had the same conclusion I did when you're reading some of these is that there's something lacking in almost all of them. Like they, But I, I don't know how you go about making that experiment. But Yeah, yeah, there are other pieces of software that go out and evaluate um, the trajectory log files. So log file analysis after an IMRTQA, you just run it without the patient there. And again, this it's is just a looking. point that 
really bothers me. You don't, I don't like log file QA? Oh, I do. I don't want to call out a vendor, but one vendor made it very difficult to analyze those log files with the latest and greatest version of their machine, where before you could look at the log files of any beam immediately after it was delivered. This was part of our monthly QA. We delivered these set plans, looked at the yep. log files. Yeah, you can analyze all this stuff. I 100% know who, who you're talking about. Uh, we had the same problem at Upstate. We've we have a piece of MATLAB code that is a pain in the butt to run. Only one guy really knows how how to run it. And so we can do it. That is our annual test now. It used to be like our weekly test. And that's so frustrating to me because yeah. I feel like that was such a cool thing. I mean, it was such a – and I know there's software you can buy that does it. And we're yeah. we're actually working on getting that because I, I think it's so valuable. But – it's just so sad to me that it's it's something that was available in these previous versions. It was right there. It was free. And now we have to pay money to this third party to get this. I don't know. I don't know why they chose to do that. But do you know the even another... more frustrating part about it? I would love to hear it. Their service guys have a piece of software that does that same analysis for them. And it's right. installed on your service machine, but you need a key to turn it on. It's just stupid. Yeah. It's my personal opinion. My personal opinion does, and no one else's does that, is does that, that flag stupid. them? Does that flag them because I said key? Or is that uh is that a generic yeah. enough term? I, I don't believe it's generic enough, so maybe we should just buzz that out and just leave key. You need a vendor provided <laughs> key to key? turn it on. <laughs> yeah. A beeping key. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that was my little rant of the evening. Yeah, and rant. Um, and rant. <laughs> and rant. But, I mean, maybe some of these things the TG report maybe should have addressed because I feel like – I don't know how they would address it, but say something about that. Like, say looking at the log files is important because I feel like if they would put something in there, it would give, you know, power to buy some of this software if you can't – you don't have the money for it or – Well, so they did – I mean, they talked about it. They talked about – this is a uh, so hold on let's uh, i need to scroll through a little bit review of measurement methods i mean they they talked about 2d methods 2d 3d methods reconstruction methods you know they they've looked at all this they they don't make a recommendation on it and i think part of the problem is, is that they weren't charged to make a recommendation on it the state of the field is maybe that there isn't a consensus yet but it comes down to what your philosophy is. You know, they also talk about these 3D, like, hey, we can recreate a DVH. Great. The report actually does say 3D QA is preferred. Um, but so does that mean that we all go out and buy one of the two vendor solutions that can do 3D QA? And by the way, they don't have high enough resolution in order for us to adequately QA our SBRT plans. And by the way, it's still takes this crazy computer and by the way it also costs some crazy amount of money for every clinic to be able to do this when what added benefit are we bringing to the patient yeah so we still go back to that like have we figured out how good at this is at analyzing what we're looking for i don't know yeah. maybe we should have looked at that more so i mean one one interesting thing i've uh, been lucky enough because our institution is an alliance member and our department chairs, the chair of the alliance research group, is I get to sit in and listen to the, the physics group on the National Clinical Trials Network talk about 
what are some things we can bring to the front on the next generation of protocols? So how can we make templates for physics QA to be built into these? And specifically, NRG has, uh, sorry, the National Research Group and some of their GYN protocols. They've talked about having offsite review of like a, they use a knowledge-based planning algorithm to make sure that your plan meets a sufficient quality. You know, what What about I, including IMRT QA passing rates to see if that correlates with outcome? I would be really fascinated with that because you, you have to submit all the, that information. When you submit a patient to protocol, you've got to submit the RT dose, the RT plan, the a printout of everything, the CT, all the pets and everything. You have to submit your QA results. So what if that bit got collected and we looked at, okay, well, we know that, for example, plan quality in head and neck cases directly relates to whether or not we get good control. One of the RTOG, recent RTOG reports established that. Does IMRTQA at any point play a role in whether or not a patient does well or poor? That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm guessing no, to be honest. My bet would be that the bigger predictor is plan quality. If you have a good plan, then you're going to get a better result. And IMRTQA has no ability to judge that, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Oh, okay. Well, hey, let's talk about the recommendations. I mean, I don't, I don't know how long we've been droning on here, but um, let's talk about some of these recommendations. So, what do you, what do you think the most important recommendation TG two eighteen comes out and says is? Well, it gives gamma criteria that you should be using. Yeah, what are those? Three percent, two millimeters, and so the universal tolerance limits that they are recommending is that the gamma passing rate should be greater than or equal to 95% with your gamma criteria being 3% and two millimeters. The action limit should be the same gamma limits, 3%, two millimeters, but with 90% of the points passing. So in other words, if 95% of your points or more pass, then great. Everything's wonderful. If between 90 and 95% pass, you should look into it further. If less than 90% of the points pass, then that's a hard stop. Evaluate what's wrong. Don't continue with the plan. Which, that's pretty close to, I feel like, what people have been doing for a long time. The only difference would be, what I've always heard of people using is 3% 3 millimeters. So, 3% 2 millimeters seems a little tighter than what I've heard people using. But whether or not that's a bad thing or not, I don't know. Is it good? Is it bad? Nobody knows for sure. So... Are you using these criteria in your clinic? We are now, yes. Oh, I should probably make a push to do that. Maybe after Monday when I sit for my board exam, I will uh, come back with a renewed head of steam. Either that or I'll just engage in the burnout. <laughs> so one of the things, though, that, that I should point out is that they do recommend tighter criteria for your SRSs and your SBRTs. This is one thing that I kind of feel is a little more challenging. They recommend using, you know, 2% one millimeter or 1% one millimeter. So this is pretty tight criteria. And depending on the device that you're using to measure this, it seems like it might be almost impossible to pass. So I don't know. Well, so, yeah, yeah. So we use portal dosimetry. So we're able to get that two millimeter resolution very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when I'm using a portal dosimetry QA for an SBRT plan, I'm using 2% two millimeters. I'm not using 2% one. And I don't think that they recommend that you use 2% one millimeter for SBRT or SRS specifically. They just say that you should evaluate that to see if there are specific errors in your delivery system that you are not noticing with, with the broader criteria. 
but I, I definitely feel like the specifically the the DTA threshold needs to be tighter on an SBRT. I agree with the two millimeters. I don't think the one millimeter is as good of a, a factor. I think you're going to chase yourself around all day for SBRTs yes. where you've got five millimeter margins, seven millimeter margins in some cases. SRS is more challenging, but I mean. Yeah. Yeah. SRS, that's a different ball know. game. You, I, mm-hmm. I don't even know if IMRT really should be <laughs> used in what you would call a cranial SRS. That's that's so hard. That's so hard to make that call. So, yeah, I, I I agree. I think that's really the big that's the big recommendation here. Is there anything here that you aren't doing in your clinic regularly? I can't say there is. We're rock stars where I'm from. Well, yeah, you guys are. <laughs> I mean, I think it is interesting that the report goes in and they specifically say things like um, you should not be using the per field, um, the perpendicular field by field to evaluate. No, they they, they say the the perpendicular composite. Right. The per- yeah. Okay. That was my meant. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's interesting that they go through and, and recommend the ways that you should be doing the analysis. And I don't know, I think that might affect some people more than some of the limits. Because I think a, a lot of places have hopefully switched to gamma analysis. And that's based, a lot of it's based on what ACR is recommending, if you're ACR accredited. They've wanted you to use gamma for a while. Yeah, yeah. So actually, since we talked earlier, I know this about your clinic. Uh, you, you and I both use perpendicular composite. Because uh, we both are portal dosimetry users, correct? Well, we are using... Per- mm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say. So, we do that for... Um, you're using transit dosimetry, you mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, we use um, a portal dosimetry solution as well for our VMAT plans. And TG218 specifically calls that out and says VMAT on an EPID as a QA method, that counts as perpendicular composite imaging. So even if you evaluate arc by arc, you are not capturing the nuances of the gantry and MU dose rate uh, modulation, which is a fair criticism. And I th- again, I think goes back to our, okay, so what's the purpose of this? Is this to find small changes in dose rate or is this to find the fact that the MLCs aren't moving back and forth the way they're supposed to? So so for me, I'm, I'm comfortable with a perpendicular composite measurement for a VMAT plan. I don't think that there's enough benefit added by going out and buying a phantom with an inclinometer or a rotating phantom or using a, th- a full 3D array of diodes, but that's just me and also the other physicists in my clinic. Yeah. So I think we've reached the point in our discussion where we bring in our colleagues and see if they have anything to add. So Allison, Allison, what are you doing in your clinic? I'm actually working on a new project where I compare dose coverage between VMAT and IMRT, and I found out for the first time what the difference was only about two weeks ago. So you actually know something about this topic then? Not in the least bit, but I can ask you questions (laughs) if you want to talk more. So something I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Can IMRTQA account for or assess dose painting plans where there's non-uniform dose. Yeah, that's that's the only way to do dose painting in that way. You're, are you talking about like uh, if you have multiple prescription levels? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's that can only be accomplished with an inverse plan. Either that or like you have crazy hot 
levels in your lower dose areas. But the IMRTQA can assess that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. It's not what I thought the answer would be. Okay, so my next question is, what about protons? How is IMPTQA different than IMRTQA? Oh, that's a good question. I Proton intensity modulation know. is uh, actually an energy modulation, isn't it? I think it's more of like an energy modulation where you have these beamlets and yes, no. There are multiple different types of proton yeah. modulation. Yeah, so, so you can have passive and active which does do some energy modulation, but it also will do intensity modulation for things like, um, not not like for prostate or lung, but more to modulate the amount of absorption that you're going to get through a, a rib or a piece of spine or something. It will modulate for that. They also have IMPT planning techniques that will allow you to dose paint effectively on targets that... yeah run up against critical structures at the distal end. But again, that's an energy modulation if it's at the distal end. They also are doing an actual intensity modulation. So even if you had a uniform energy, they can shoot varying numbers of protons at different portions of the field in the same way that you could have, um, well, not in the same way, I guess, because TVs uniformly scatter electrons all over the place. But you could have one corner of your screen be brighter than the other four or other three. I have a five-corner TV, so I wouldn't know. Yes. So the reason we don't see IMPT quite the same way we see IMRT is in most uh, proton centers, the the treatment plans are created with single or maybe two gantry angles because of the complexities of delivering in a uh, proton center. So you don't have the types of treatment plans where you have five different beam angles or seven different beam angles that are modulating the dose uh, to attempt to create, you know, a a convex dose distribution. Instead, you're relying on the ability of protons to stop at a certain depth. So I want to go back to when you guys were discussing log file QA. There's an interesting discussion I'd like to have on that, that when you're looking at log file QA, which is analyzing what the machine has recorded, the positions of the various parameters modulating the field, uh, the position of the gantry, the number of monitor units is delivering, and it's recording that to a log file that you go back and look at and compare with what you intended the machine to do. That will only catch errors where the machine knows it did something wrong. Correct. Well, so it's not it's not necessarily wrong. It's just, is it within a tolerance or not? So if it does something, quote unquote, wrong, it's going to throw a fault. But it's a question of at what level is the machine tolerance being taxed? So if you have a significant number of MLC leaves being at the, the limit of their tolerance, then you know that you have a fairly highly modulated plan in the same way that like for our monthly MLC leaf speed tests, you know, we, we run a, a relatively easy plan and then a relatively hard plan. And the relatively easy plan, it does just fine with. And the relatively hard plan, it, you know, you could see a difference between what the residual errors are. So log file analysis may not be able to tell you when something 
is an actual physical error, but it can tell you when the machine is being worked hard. Yeah, I think that's things like beam holdoffs, what the maximum error in your leaves is, how many of those leaves had that maximum error. There's his, I don't know, there's a lot of interesting information in there. But I think that brings up a good point that you can't just blindly trust that kind of thing either. Because like Nick said, the machine has to know <laughs> that something's incorrect and so it would be like something you use in combination with other things, but I think it's a tool that having it available adds a lot of information that I think is helpful. I think I would absolutely agree that it's a way of giving you more information, diagnostic tools to see is the machine creeping towards problems or are the types of plans we're creating getting too complicated for the machine and putting it into a region where we can correlate this with poor IMRTQ outcomes and say, we need to look at how we're creating these plans and try and minimize some optimization objective that we can control. You know, I'll tell you one thing we did notice in our clinic was doing that IMRTQA did catch some cases where plant, some plans were overmodulated. We, there was, a software upgrade and there were some new options available and we discovered pretty quickly that, you know, our modulation was a lot higher than it used to be. And, you know, we caught that right away because we were doing IMRTQA. So it wasn't that the plans were failing, they all passed, but they weren't as good as we had expected them to be from experience. So I think this all goes back to like our value as physicists is not just checking a box saying pass fail. It's, and I think this report talks about that a little bit. It's looking at the results and saying, do I have a reason for this? Is this expected? Is this unexpected? Are things trending in a direction? And I just want to put a plug in there because one of the personal things I believe is that we should be tracking IMRTQA results over time. And um, yeah, I think that's just an important thing to do. And I think that kind of goes back to that, that you can catch some of those problems if you're tracking and saying, hey, we were fluctuating around 0%, plus or minus 1%, plus or minus 2%. And now all of a sudden, all of our IMRTQA results are you know, zero to 2%, none of them are below zero. So something shifted and looking at that is important. So. Yeah, actually, I found that really interesting earlier when you said that you are tracking that trend and we we've noticed variations in our passing rates that typically correspond to changes in the machine output. So we've looked at um, daily QA when we start to see a couple um, IMR TQAs that we are noticing are not quite as good as we were used to seeing them. Um, and normally we've seen that, oh, well, maybe the machine output has drifted up a little bit. So we don't explicitly track the IMRTQA results, but definitely something that I think we would want to work towards. It's a kind of a plug to the idea of all data that we collect should really be indexed in some way so that right now we're not trending it, but it would be really great if five years from now we decide there's something we can glean from this and it's already in a data set that we can analyze against. We can do big data analysis on our past 10 years of treatments and see, oh, we can correlate this with a machine output and we can correlate this with uh, some metric that we determine for plan complexity. Yeah. And Andrea, speaking to what you were talking about a little bit about how we're not just here to look at that one number, I, I also found it really valuable to hear, to read the discussion in TG218 about not just looking at the, the number of points passing, but to evaluate the histogram of the number of points that pass, but also to look at what's the ratio of things that are 
well above your tolerance. What's your max gamma value? So if you've got a gamma of two, that means that there is a point within your plan where at best it is twice as far away from what you're supposed to have as one of your tolerance levels. So it's either if it's 3%, two millimeter tolerance, that means that they're a gamma of two. There's a point that is either 6% different or four, four millimeters away from where it's supposed to be. Right. Um, and having that and then what fraction is above certain levels, you know, is that going to change the way I'm evaluating my QA every day? Right now, probably not. But I think that's a discussion that more physicists need to start engaging in to come up with, oh, maybe we need to have some more nuanced criterion um, because, you know, in the end, we're still stuck with just one level with this report. They say this is important, but we're not giving you further guidance on other metrics to, to evaluate. We just have the one level with a tolerance limit and an action limit. We need our next genius to come forward and propose a new gamma. Nick, Sean? I thought you asked for a genius. <laughs> oh, that's me then. I'll come up with that's one. That's right. So I think we've beat this dead horse long enough. Uh, anybody here uh, have anything further to say? So once again, I just want to say... Tell us about, you know, one of the things I would love to hear from you about is situations where you had an IMRT QA that failed. What was the outcome of that? What did you do? What steps do you take? What questions do you ask? Was it an actual problem with the plan or was it a setup problem? All of those things I'm interested in. I love reading about. It's kind of a little mental thing I think about a lot with IMRT QA and I'd love to hear your stories. I'm sure everyone else here would too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So head over to reddit.com slash r slash hormesis podcast and tell us all about your IMRT QA. Or visit us on Instagram or Pinterest. <laughs> or send us your favorite recipes on Pinterest. <laughs> and so with that, we look forward to hearing from you. That's all from us. This has been Sean. And Andrea. Nick. And Allison. Good night. And good luck.